let's get into the word. And today we're picking up our series in 2 Samuel. Uh, we left off last week at the beginning of, kind of in the beginning of chapter 19, and we will pick up, I think in verse 8, uh, in your pew Bible, that is um, 253, I believe, page 253 in the pew Bible, 2 Samuel 19. And when you have that and you're ready, would you stand to honor the reading of God's word? Second Samuel 19, starting in the middle of verse 8. Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. And all the people were arguing throughout all the tribes of Israel, saying, The king delivered us from the hand of our enemies and saved us from the hand of the Philistines. And now he has fled out of the land from Absalom. But Absalom whom we anointed over us, is dead in battle. Now, therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? And King David sent this message to Zadok and Abiathar the priests. Say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and my flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? And say to Amasa, Are you not my bone and my flesh? God do so to me and more also, if you are not commander of my army from now on in place of Joab. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, so that they sent word to the king. Return, both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan, and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. And Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. And Shimei, the son of Gera, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan and said to the king, Let not my lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart, for your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my lord the king. Abishai, the son of Zeruiah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this, because he cursed the Lord's anointed? But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zeruiah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me. Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, You shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes. From the day the king departed, 
until the day he came back in safety. And when he came to Jerusalem to meet the king, the king said to him, Why did you not go with me, Mephibosheth? He answered, My lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself, that I may go ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my lord the king. But my lord the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, Why speak any more of your affairs? I had decided. You and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, Oh, let him take it all, since my lord the king has come safely home. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Ogelim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan, to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Maanayim, for he was a very wealthy man. And the king said to Barzillai, Come over with me, and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. But Barzillai said to the king, How many years have I still to live, that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? I am this day eighty years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of seeing men and seeing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my lord the king? Your servant will go a little way over the Jordan with the king. Why should the king repay me with such a reward? Please let your servant return, that I may die in my own city, near the grave of my father and my mother. But here is your servant, Chimham. Let him go over with my lord the king, and do for him whatever seems good to you. And the king answered, Chimham shall go over with me, and I will do for him whatever seems good to you. And all that you desire of me, I will do for you. Then all the people went over the Jordan, and the king went over. And the king kissed Barzillai and blessed him. And he returned to his own home. The king went on to Gilgal, and Shimham went on with him. All the people of Judah, and also half the people of Israel, brought the king on his way. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together. God, we would ask now that as we've turned our attention to your word, God, that you would speak to each and every one of us. God, we have come to this place today for sure to meet with each other, but underneath that, we've come to this church this morning because we desire to meet with you. God, we've come because we want to offer you worship. We've come today because, Lord, we want to learn from your word. We want to hear your voice so that we can listen and obey. So, Father, we would ask now that by your spirit, you would empower us and strengthen us in our inner person to be able to grasp the meaning of this passage. God, that you might speak into each of our lives, that you might strengthen our faith, that you might fill us with hope today, 
that you might lead us to delight in you. So God, we love you. We're so grateful this morning. We're so moved by the fact that you love us. And of course, the great evidence of your love for us is the sending of your own son, the Lord Jesus, for our sins. So God, thank you so much for your love. We pray you'd help us to rest in it. We pray you'd help us to delight in your love this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, good morning. This morning, we are finding King David, the main character of 2 Samuel, in what I would describe as a very fragile political situation. In the previous chapters in the book of 2 Samuel, there's been a revolt in his kingdom. And that revolt was led by his own son, a man named Absalom, who sought to usurp his father's throne and take over his father's kingdom. When Absalom revolted against his father, David had to flee out of the capital city of Jerusalem. And he fled with some loyal subjects. And they crossed the Jordan River and they took off to the east. Once David evacuated the city of Jerusalem, his son with a large army came and he descended on the capital city and he took control there in Jerusalem. Eventually, David was able to muster up a bit of an army and his army came and met Absalom's army in a battle and David's troops were victorious. In that battle, Absalom himself was captured and he was executed. He was killed. He died in battle. So David's immediate threat has been dealt with. His son has been killed. The army has been routed. But things are not all well in Israel at this point. Obviously, there are many people who were traitors, who sided with Absalom and who rebelled against David and who are not sure that they want David back. They don't know what that's going to mean for them. Is he going to take take vengeance on us and execute all of us? And so it's a very, very fragile political situation. He's had victory in this war, but he has not yet taken, or retaken, I should say, control of the nation of Israel. And we see that here in this initial paragraph of chapter 19, starting in verse 8, that there are people who don't know what they want to do with King David here in the land of Israel. The verse in verse 8 there, our reading today, began with this statement. It says, Now Israel had fled every man to his own home. Israel here is referring to Absalom's army because Absalom's army was gathered from people from all over the nation of Israel, from all the tribes. And after Absalom died in battle, again, his troops now, all of Israel, are like, we don't really know what to do. So they retreated, they fled, and everybody just went home. They went back to their own houses, to their own communities, And they're trying to figure out what to do next. They're not sure what to do. The guy that they anointed king, the guy that they wanted to replace David was killed in battle. And now again, they know they're just a bunch of traitors and their lives are in danger. So what should they do to make things right? Well, one side of the argument says in verse 10, Now therefore, why do you say nothing about bringing the king back? So there's at least one viewpoint in Israel that says, you know, maybe we should just try to get David back. 
Maybe we should, we should try to make amends with King David. See if we can sort this all out and get our king back. And they even reference the fact that it was King David who delivered them from the Philistines. He has fought for us in the past. He's done so much for us. Why then haven't we said anything about just bringing David back and making him king over us again? And this desire among at least some of the people of Israel initiates David's return to Jerusalem. The sermon title this morning is The Return of the King. And we see David, who was again sort of exiled in the east, returning now back to the city of Jerusalem. And in verses 8 through 15, we see David beginning to return to Jerusalem. When David hears about this desire that many of these Israelites have about bringing him back and making him king, he reaches out to some of his inside guys that he had left there in the city of Jerusalem. It's a couple of priests named Zadok and Abiathar. And he sends them a message and he wants them to share a message with the elders of the tribe of Judah. It's recorded for us in verses 11 and 12. Here's David's message that he wants these priests to give. He says, say to the elders of Judah, why should you be the last to bring the king back to his house when the word of all Israel has come to the king? You are my brothers. You are my bone and flesh. Why then should you be the last to bring back the king? See, David is from the tribe of Judah. There are 12 tribes in the land of Israel, but he's from Judah. And he's hearing that there's people from all these other 11 tribes who want to bring him back and make him king. And he's saying, what about my own people? Shouldn't they be the ones who are taking the lead on this and saying, we want our guy back? And so he reaches out to these elders and he wants them to lead the charge of bringing him back and restoring his power in Jerusalem. He also has the priests reach out to a man named Amasa. And he offers Amasa a job. He says to Amasa through these messengers that he's going to make Amasa, the commander of his army now, and replace his longstanding commander, which is his relative, a man named Joab. And this is really, really interesting because Amasa was the commander of Absalom's army. So David here is saying, I want to replace my own commander of my army with the commander of the rebel army. What is David doing? Why in the world would he offer this job to this man who was a traitor and who actually led the army against him? Well, as I mentioned, David is in a very politically delicate situation and he needs to win support. And so he knows that there are plenty of people in the land of Israel who, again, are asking questions. If David comes back into power, what is he going to do to us? Is he really going to just uh, reconcile with us and everything will be on friendly terms again and we can just be his people and he'll be our king? Or is he going to execute all of us? David knows people are wondering about that. And so David knows that if he takes this guy who was the rebel commander and he makes him the commander of his own army, it will communicate a message to all of Israel that, listen, I'm not in this for war anymore. I'm about peace I'm about reconciliation. I want to unify this nation once again. We can let bygones be bygones. We can put the past behind us. I will forgive. I will reconcile with the nation. And guess what? It works. His message is received loud and clear. Look again at verse 14. And he swayed the heart of all the men of Judah as one man, 
So they sent word to the king, return both you and all your servants. So the king came back to the Jordan and Judah came to Gilgal to meet the king and to bring the king over the Jordan. So it works. Now all of a sudden the whole tribe of Judah is behind David again. They're supporting David. They're casting their lot with David and they come to meet him and bring him back to the capital. And check this out. David's journey back to Jerusalem is a mirror image of his departure out of Jerusalem. Everything is reversed. And you'll notice now that as he goes back down to cross the Jordan and then head back to Jerusalem, you'll notice now that he meets the same characters that he met when he fled from the city of Jerusalem. The first characters that he runs into are a man named Shimei and a man named Ziba. And here we see David do something spectacular. We see David here pardoning his enemies. This is in verses 16 through verse 30. Look again at verse 16. And Shimei, the son of Girah, the Benjaminite from Bahurim, hurried to come down with the men of Judah to meet King David. Notice the word hurried. Verse 17. And with him were a thousand men from Benjamin. And Ziba, the servant of the house of Saul, with his 15 sons and his 20 servants, rushed down to the Jordan before the king. And they crossed the ford to bring over the king's household and to do his pleasure. So the author here tells us that this man Shimei, he hurries down to the Jordan. He wants to get there in a, in a rush and meet the king there at the Jordan. And he brings a thousand men, probably a thousand soldiers from his tribe, which is the tribe of Benjamin. This man Ziba, we read, rushed down with his servants and his sons to wait on David hand and foot to help the king and all of his household to actually get across the river Jordan. Everyone is trying to beat the king to the Jordan because they want to ingratiate themselves with the king as he returns to the capital. They know he's going to be in power again and they want to be on good terms with him. They want to be the recipients of all of his blessings when he resumes his rule. It all seems pretty self-serving. But interestingly, this man Shimei, he can't just jump in and begin serving David like Ziba can. No, 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 no. This man Shimei is not on good terms with King David. You'll remember in the previous chapters, back in chapter 16, when David was fleeing from Jerusalem... It was this man, Shimei, who was cursing David and his household, and he was verbally and physically assaulting them on the roadway. And so all Shimei can do at this moment, now that David has won the battle and is going to be king again, is come and cast himself before the king and beg and plead that David would show him mercy. There's nothing else for him to do. He knows that he deserves to die. He knows that what he did by cursing the Lord's anointed is unforgivable. And so he has nothing that he can do but come and beg for mercy. And here's what he says in verse 18. Go halfway through the verse. It says, And Shimei, the son of Girah, fell down before the king as he was about to cross the Jordan. And said to the king, Let not my Lord hold me guilty or remember how your servant did wrong on the day my Lord the king left Jerusalem. Do not let the king take it to heart. For your servant knows that I have sinned. Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph, to come down to meet my Lord, 
the king. Shimei is begging for mercy here. And notice what that looked like. There's three components to it. First, you'll notice that he fell down before the king. This is a posture of humility and it's a posture of submission before David. He just falls down in front of the king. He's communicating there that you're the king, you're the Lord, you're in control, and I'm just an unworthy servant. I don't deserve anything from you. You're in charge. You're the boss. Next, notice what he does. Not only does he fall down before David and submit himself to David's rule, but he also confesses his sin. And he asks David to forgive him. In verse 20, he says directly, for your servant knows that I have sinned. He owns it. He's confessing his sin. I know that I have sinned. I've done what's wrong. And he's not just being general here. He's he's referring to specific sin. Look at verse 19. It says, and your servant did wrong on the day my Lord, the king, left Jerusalem. He says, I know I sinned against you. Specifically, on that day when I was cursing you and I was throwing stones at you and I was mocking you and ridiculing you and wishing death upon you, I sinned against you on that day. So he confesses his sin. But he also asks David for forgiveness. It's in verse 19. He says, first, let not my Lord hold me guilty. And then he goes on to say, do not let the king take it to heart. So here, Shimei, again, first he humbles himself before David. He submits himself before God's anointed one, before the king of Israel. And then he confesses his sin. And then he asks David to forgive him. And then finally, there's one more step to this. The third aspect of this is he begins to show evidence of his repentance. Look at verse 20. He says to David, he says, Therefore, behold, I have come this day, the first of all the house of Joseph to come down to meet my Lord, the king. What's he saying? He's saying, hey, King David, listen, while everyone else is trying to figure out what to do with you, while the rest of the tribes of Israel are trying to decide whether they even want you to come back and be king, I have actually come down here. I've made my decision. I have cast my lot with you. I don't know how this is all going to turn out, but I am declaring you to be my king and I am offering my service to you. He's demonstrating repentance. But interestingly, before David can respond to this man's plea where he's asking David to pardon him, Abishai, one of the commanders of David's army, he just kind of butts in there a little bit and tells David what he thinks should happen. Look at verse 21. Abishai, the son of Zariah, answered, Shall not Shimei be put to death for this? Because he cursed the Lord's anointed? Now, you'll remember that Abishai, this same man, he asked David if he could go take off Shimei's head back in chapter 16. When David was being cursed out by this guy, he's like, why why are we letting this dead dog do this? Let me go over and lop off his head. And David told him no there. And so now Abishai is like, okay, this is going to be the moment. This is the day of reckoning. Justice is going to fall. Can I just kill this guy, David? Shouldn't he be put to death for what he has done to you? He's hoping this time David is going to give him the green light. But shockingly, against all expectations, David does not look at verse 22 and see how David responds. But David said, What have I to do with you, you sons of Zariah, that you should this day be as an adversary to me? 
Shall anyone be put to death in Israel this day? For do I not know that I am this day king over Israel? And the king said to Shimei, you shall not die. And the king gave him his oath. David actually looks at Abishai in this moment, who's been a faithful commander for David. And he says, listen, you're, you're, you're on the verge of being an adversary to me today. What David means is like, if I were to just kill this guy Shimei, that would do nothing to further my purposes. That would not help me unify the nation. That would not help me put out an olive branch for peace with all of these distraught people in Israel. So if we did what you want, Abishai, it would actually be working against me and my agenda. Abishai, listen, I know I'm king in Israel. Absalom is dead. All I need to do is reestablish control and it's not going to come by alienating the people who rebelled against me. I'm not doing that. So David pardons Shimei. And David swears to this man that he is not going to kill him. What a powerful picture of forgiveness this is. A man deserving of death, who had no right to ask for mercy or to ask for forgiveness, but he just threw himself at the mercy of David, hoping that David would be merciful and forgive him. He knew he should die. And yet David offers him forgiveness. And friends, Shimei and David's interaction serves as an incredible picture of what it looks like to experience forgiveness and receive forgiveness from the Lord Jesus Christ. It's a great picture. See, David in the Old Testament, King David, he functions as what's called a type of Christ. What that means is that when you look at David in the Old Testament, Through David, we're able to see his life pointing us forward to King Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one who would come on the scene. And through David, we begin to learn things about the character of Jesus himself. Friends, like Shimei, all people have sinned against the Lord and have therefore made themselves enemies of God. In James chapter 4, verse 4, we're alerted to the fact That outside of Christ, we are enemies of God. Here's what James 4.4 says. You adulterous people, do you not know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself what? An enemy of God. And so every single person through our sin and through our rebellion against God, we've made ourselves like Shimei, enemies of God. And the Bible says because of that, we are deserving of God's judgment. God is perfectly just in condemning all of us to death, not just physically, but spiritually and eternally. God would be perfectly just if he just damned every single person to hell because every single person has followed their own sinful desires, their own flesh, and said no to what God desires and said no to what God designed us to do. And so family, listen, if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, you need to know that this man, Shimei, becomes a great example of how you need to respond to King Jesus. And I stress the word need, because literally heaven and hell hang in the balance. And so you need to follow his example. Like Shimei, the first thing you need to do is you need to come to a place of humility in your life where you recognize that you are not God and he is God and you need to submit yourself to the Lord. 
Of course, nobody can get to this place on their own, though. Our hearts are too hard. Our selfishness is too pronounced. And so the Bible teaches us that only God himself can help a person to come to their senses and see and sense their need for him. God has to do that. In fact, in 1 Corinthians, the Apostle Paul in chapter 2, verse 14, he says this. This is incredible. He says, the natural person, meaning the person that does not have a relationship with God, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him or foolishness to him. We talk about heaven, we talk about hell, we talk about God's wrath, we talk about judgment, and the natural person just laughs at all that. He goes, come on, are you serious? It's 2023. This isn't the Middle Ages. Do we still believe this stuff? Haven't we progressed beyond that? It's folly to him. But Paul goes on to say this. He says, and he is not able to understand them. And here's the reason why. Because they are spiritually discerned. Paul goes on in that passage to talk about how what we need is the Holy Spirit. We need God himself to open our minds <clears throat> And to open our hearts to these realities. So you can't do it on your own. But if you are not a Christian here today. And yet God is opening your heart to the reality that you have sinned against him. Meaning that you have not loved God faithfully in your life. Meaning that you have not loved your neighbor faithfully in your life then you need to know that you can experience pardon. But step number one is to humble yourself. It's to cast yourself upon the mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ. And step number two is to confess your sin and to ask the Lord for forgiveness. It's to come to terms with the fact that you have sinned. There's no reason to try to sugarcoat that or to justify yourself because it will not work. God knows everything about you. He knows everything you've ever done. He knows everything you've ever thought. He knows everything you've ever said. Who can stand in the day of judgment and say, no, 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 no. I've perfectly loved God and I've perfectly loved my neighbor. If you try to play that card on judgment day, it's not going to work well for you. And so the scriptures are calling us to just confess our sin and own it. Romans 3.23 says, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. Confess your sins, ask for forgiveness, and then finally, like Shimei, need to repent of your sin. Repent is a Bible word that basically means to do a 180. It's a turning of your mind. So it means that a person used to believe certain things about God. You were going in one direction. You had certain beliefs about God, certain beliefs about yourself, certain beliefs about heaven and hell and the afterlife. And all of that was producing certain behaviors. And you were living in your flesh, living in sin. And all of a sudden, Jesus calls out to you and God opens your heart and you realize, I need a savior and I need, I need forgiveness and I need a relationship with God. And repentance is saying, I'm going to do a 180 now. And all of a sudden, I'm thinking totally differently about my life. I used to have no regard for God and now God's the most important thing in the world to me. I used to not care about the law of God, but now I love the law of God because I know it leads to life and to blessing. And all of a sudden you begin walking in a brand new way in your life and it's the way of the Lord. And that's called repentance and it's evidence that you truly trust in the Lord Jesus Christ and you need to repent and start living in a way that honors the Lord and demonstrates that you belong to him. 
And friend, I don't care who you are. I don't care what you've done. I don't care what your background is. But if you will do that, and if you will even do that today, if you would humble yourself and confess your sin and ask for God's forgiveness and begin following the Lord from this day forward, guess what? Jesus will fully and finally pardon you. All of your sin will be forgiven and he'll give you a brand new start and he'll give you a relationship with God. It's amazing. And here's the crazy thing about Shimei and then we'll move on because we've got to. David pardoned him here. We saw that he pardoned him. But honestly, it was probably more politically motivated than heartfelt. Why would I say that? Well, We suspect this to be the case because at the end of David's life, he's an old man, he's lying in his his bed, he's about to die. He calls in his son Solomon, who's going to take the throne after him. And he starts giving his son some instructions on his deathbed. And as he does, he says, hey, don't forget what Shimei did to me. Execute that guy. This is 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 8 and 9. And there is also with you, David says to Solomon, Shimei, the son of Gera, the Benjaminite from Behurim, who cursed me with a grievous curse on the day when I went to Mahanaim. But when he came down to meet me at the Jordan, I swore to him by the Lord saying, I will not put you to death with the sword. Then here's what he says. He says, now, therefore, do not hold him guiltless for you are a wise man. You will know what you ought to do to him and you shall bring his gray head down with blood to Sheol. David says, kill this guy. Make sure you bring justice. Make sure you execute him. Now, if Abishai was there, you can imagine old Abishai offering his services to Solomon. Like third time's a charm here. Let me finally kill this guy that I've been wanting to kill for decades. But friends, herein lies a remarkable difference between David, the Lord's anointed, and Jesus, God's ultimate anointed one. For those who receive pardon from Jesus for their sins, there is never any fear that he's going to take it back from you. I love that about Jesus. Yes, David is a picture of Christ, but he falls short. He pardoned this man, Shemai. He extended his life, but he ultimately revoked that pardon at the end of his life. But for those of us who put our faith and trust in Jesus and experience forgiveness of our sins, there is never any fear that at some point in your life, he's going to say, that's it, that's enough, I'm taking it back. Now you've got to pay for your own sin. Now you've got to go to hell and experience judgment. Jesus would never do that. When Jesus hung on the cross, he said, it is finished. He's taken our sin as far as the east is from the west. Never to be remembered or brought back in front of us Again, our forgiveness from Christ is full and it is final. And we praise the Lord for that. Well, the next character that David runs into and pardons is a man named Mephibosheth. I've got to warn you, the plot thickens here a little bit. We've got to get a little bit of backstory here to fully appreciate what's going on. Mephibosheth was the grandson of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. He was the son of David's best friend, Jonathan, who used to be the crown prince in Israel. But when Jonathan died, King David was looking for people in Jonathan's family that he could show the kindness of the Lord to. Because most of Jonathan's family was wiped out. He ends up finding about this this son who was crippled in his feet named Mephibosheth. And David's so excited that he now has a son of Jonathan that he can show God's kindness to. And he brings Mephibosheth to the palace 
He treats him like a son. He gives him immense wealth and resources and servants to wait on him hand and foot. And he allows Mephibosheth to eat at the king's table for the rest of his life. It's a beautiful story of reconciliation. But back when David was fleeing from Jerusalem and his life was on the run, a man named Ziba, who was the servant of Mephibosheth, came to David and he lied about his master Mephibosheth. He told David that Mephibosheth had betrayed him and stayed in the city of Jerusalem, that he was looking, excuse me, for a new king. And at that point, David gave Ziba all of Mephibosheth's property. But now, here in chapter 19, Mephibosheth has a chance to tell his side of the story. David asks him in verse 25, why did you not go with me? And then he explains that Ziba deceived him. Look at verse, verse 26. He answered, my Lord, O king, my servant deceived me. For your servant said to him, I will saddle a donkey for myself that I may ride on it and go with the king. For your servant is lame. He has slandered your servant to my Lord, the king. But my Lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems good to you. So now we get the other side of the story. Mephibosheth, as I mentioned, was crippled in his feet. He's lame. He couldn't get his horse ready. He couldn't get out of Jerusalem on his own. He had to be cared for and carried everywhere he went. And he said, I want my horse saddled. I want to go and follow the king. And Ziba just abandoned him and left him. And he's stuck there in the city of Jerusalem. Mephibosheth's appearance seems to confirm his story. Look at verse 24. And Mephibosheth, the son of Saul, came down to meet the king. He had neither taken care of his feet, nor trimmed his beard, nor washed his clothes from the day the king departed until the day that he came back in safety. So his appearance communicates grief and mourning. He has not cared for himself at all. He's not washed himself. He has not groomed himself. He's wearing dirty, stinky clothes. This is communicating that he is in grief because his king has fled the capital city. And so Mephibosheth is telling the truth here. But rather than demanding that David exact justice on Ziba, I want you to look at what Mephibosheth is focused on. Look at verse 27 again. He tells David, he has slandered your servant to my lord, the king. And you would expect him to say, therefore, you should punish him and you should restore all my property back to me. But here's what he says instead. But my lord, the king is like the angel of God. Do therefore what seems best to you or good to you. For all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I then to cry to the king? And the king said to him, why speak any more of your affairs? I have decided you and Ziba shall divide the land. And Mephibosheth said to the king, oh, let him take it all since my lord the king has come safely home. What an amazing response from this man. Notice the three parts of his response. First, he says to David, he says, therefore, do what seems good to you. I love this. Mephibosheth does not pretend to tell David what he ought to do. Instead, he says, I trust you. You're like an angel of God with your wisdom. I trust you. Just do whatever seems right to you and I'll live with that. Here, Mephibosheth is demonstrating his faith and his trust in David. 
Next, notice he says this in verse 28. He says, for all my father's house were but men doomed to death before my Lord the king. But you set your servant among those who eat at your table. What further right have I than to cry to the king? I love this. He's, he's recognizing here that he had nothing before David rescued him. I had nothing. I was on the run. Me and all of my family, we were doomed to death. And then you rescued me and you carried me to your table and you blessed me with wealth and riches and honor. So what right do I have to try to claim those things for myself? You gave it all to me anyway. And then finally he says, oh, let him take it all. Why? He says, since my Lord, the King has come safely home. Translation, he says, David, if I have you, I have everything I need. You've taken care of me in the past. If I'm with you, I know I'll be taken care of in the future. Now, we're a pretty biblically literate church, so I know a lot of you are already seeing this. But family, can't you see here in Mephibosheth's response to David a picture of the response of a believer to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is what our posture of heart ought to look like as we think about the Lord Jesus. Like Mephibosheth, we should trust that Jesus knows best. Because family, Jesus is not just like an angel of God in his wisdom. No, Jesus is God himself. He is God incarnate. And therefore, we should have no problem saying to God, do whatever seems good to you. I trust you. Your ways are better than mine. I want what you want. And like Mephibosheth, we should acknowledge that we had nothing outside of Jesus. Family, the only reason you are alive is because Jesus is keeping you alive. He brought you into the world and the book of Colossians says he's sustaining everything right now by his power. That includes your heart that is beating in your chest without batteries. You are alive because Jesus is sustaining you. Everything that you have in your life that is good, that you love, that it feels like a blessing has come down from God himself. And not only that, but before Christ rescued you and me, we were like Mephibosheth and all of his family. We were doomed to death and we were deserving of nothing good from a holy and a just and a righteous God. And yet, like Mephibosheth, Jesus reached down and he grabbed us and he carried us to his table and he made us family and he made us royalty and he has blessed us with unbelievable blessings. And so we have to ask ourselves, what right then do we have to make demands of King Jesus? No, all we ought to do is offer our lives as a living sacrifice to him, like the Apostle Paul says, or as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 6, 19 and 20, he reminds us, you are not your own for you were bought with a price. So, or therefore glorify God in your body. Finally, friends like Mephibosheth, we should recognize that if we have Jesus, then we have all we need. I love that little equation that has circulated around the church over the last 10, 15 years. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. And there's truth to that. And it would be really, really hard for us if we actually had nothing to trust that. But friends, believe me, when we stand before the Lord in eternity and he looks at you and he says, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your Lord, you will be able to say, as long as I have Jesus, I actually didn't need anything else. I've got everything I've ever 
needed. Jesus is enough. Now, before we move on from Mephibosheth, we do need to address the fact that he was terribly wronged here. Ziba wronged this man. He deceived him. He abandoned him. Then he slandered him to King David. And he took half of his property. And we need to make mention of the fact that David here fails to give Mephibosheth justice. He only restores half of his property to him. Mephibosheth did nothing wrong. Ziba did everything wrong. And yet Ziba still comes out with half of Mephibosheth's property. But amazingly, Mephibosheth seems unfazed by this. Mephibosheth is able to move beyond it. It's it's almost like water off of a duck's back. He doesn't even bat an eye. He just moves on. And this would be so hard to do. Right? I mean, when you've been seriously offended, when somebody's really done something that has had serious consequences in your life, like, I don't know, stealing half of your wealth, it would be very hard to just say, that's okay. I can forgive. I can move on. I can continue going forward and not harbor bitterness and resentment and not hate this person. I can just let the whole thing go. This would be so hard to do. So we've got to ask ourselves, how was Ziba able to do this? And the answer is, again, because he had King David. And as long as he had David, he had everything that he could ever need. And brothers and sisters, there's a powerful lesson for us here in Mephibosheth's story. Because all of us get wronged in life. Some of us way worse than others. Some of us actually experience incredible injustice where somebody does something to you that is heinous and sinful and evil and awful. And it can be incredibly difficult for us to move past that. And we hold on to it and our hearts are poisoned because of it. And we're, we're given over to bitterness and resentment and anger and remorse and regret and depression and all of these feelings. And it's so hard to shake ourselves out of that. Because what they did to us was so wrong. And so how can we move beyond these kinds of feelings? When we've been deeply wronged in our lives. Well, the answer is that in Christ... We do have all of the resources necessary to give us the strength to actually forgive people, to give us the strength to actually move forward and to move on and to let wrongs go because those wrongs ultimately have no eternal bearing on us. And therefore, there will come a day when those wrongs no no longer matter to us. Because we will be in God's presence. And Jesus is going to wipe away every single tear from our eyes. And he is going to correct everything that was wrong in our lives and in the entire universe. And for that, I'm so thankful to be a Christian. Because man, it's hard to live your life bitter and hating people. And unable to forgive and unable to move forward. But again, friends, in Christ, we have the resources to actually do that. What a beautiful, beautiful thing that is. Well, this brings us to the final person that David meets on his way back. His name is Barzillai. 
We notice a little bit of a shift now in the text. David went from pardoning his enemies to now blessing his friends in these final verses, verses 31 through 40. Look at verse 31. Now Barzillai the Gileadite had come down from Rogalim, and he went on with the king to the Jordan to escort him over the Jordan. Barzillai was a very aged man, 80 years old. He had provided the king with food while he stayed at Mehanaim, for he was a very wealthy man. We'll stop there. So we've met Barzillai before. When David crossed the Jordan the last time and he's fleeing the capital and he has hardly anything, he has no food, he has no animals, he has no provisions for all of his people. There's this wealthy man named Barzillai and some others who come and they meet King David and they give him supplies, they refresh him, they sustain him, they take care of him while David is in need. Barzillai was a loyal subject to King David even when he wasn't certain if David would continue being king. Barzillai was wealthy and he used his wealth to support the Lord's anointed. In like manner, all of us are called to look at what the Lord has given to us and to use it to support the work of the Lord. Oftentimes, preachers will say, we all have time, treasure, and talent, right? And it's true. And those are all the things that we can offer to the Lord, our time devoted to the Lord and serving the Lord. Our treasure, the resources that God's given to us, we can invest in his kingdom and our talents, the things that God has skilled us with and gifted with us. God is saying, that's not just for you. I made you that way and I blessed you with those gifts and those talents so that you could leverage them for my kingdom and my glory and the good of others. And Barzillai was a man who looked at what he had and he saw King David in need and he said, I'm going to step in and I'm going to help. I'm going to bless. I'm going to relieve you in this terrible and difficult time. And now David, as a result, he wants to bless his friend. Look at verse 33. And the king said to Barzillai, come over with me and I will provide for you with me in Jerusalem. David saying, you know what, from this day forward, just come and get the Mephibosheth treatment. Okay, sit at my table for the rest of your life. I'll bless you. You'll be a part of the royal court. You'll be provided for out of the royal treasury. You won't have to worry about anything. But Barzillai is not interested. Look at verse 34. He says to the king, how many years have I still to live that I should go up with the king to Jerusalem? Remember, he's 80 years old. I am this day 80 years old. Can I discern what is pleasant and what is not? Can your servant taste what he eats or what he drinks? Can I still listen to the voice of singing men and singing women? Why then should your servant be an added burden to my Lord, the king? So his point's obvious. He's saying, listen, I'm really, really old. All of the delights and the delicacies of royal life, they just don't mean anything to me. I don't care about good food. I don't really care about music. I'm hard of hearing. Like all of that stuff, just, it just doesn't appeal to me anymore. And besides, I'm rich. I can take care of myself. All he wants to do is be left alone to just die with his own family on his own land. That's what he wants. And so although he's flattered and he's humbled, I'm sure, David cannot provide anything that he actually needs or that he actually desires. This shows that Barzillai's service to the king was never about what he could get out of it. He wasn't calculating when David was fleeing Jerusalem and going, okay, if I take care of David here, maybe I could get into the royal court later, or maybe I could get new lands given to me or something. It was never about that. He didn't give to get. He just did it because he was loyal to the Lord's anointed. 
Well, David may not have had the ability to bless Barzillai, but he certainly had the desire, and Barzillai can tell. And so he offers David his servant, which a lot of scholars think is, is possibly his son. He says, listen, I don't need anything from you, David, but if you really want to bless somebody, you can bless him, a man named Chimham. And David's glad to do that, and he offers to bless this man with whatever Barzillai thinks he should give to him. And so the passage ends with the king crossing over the Jordan River and arriving in Gilgal. He is well on his way back to Jerusalem. And as we close this morning, I just want us to briefly ponder David's heart toward Barzillai. David desires to bless him, right? He wants to bless this man. He wants to bring him close and he wants to care for him for the rest of his days. But David had nothing to offer to a man like Barzillai. The man was already wealthy. He had everything he needs. David reflects the heart of Christ toward his faithful servant. But David lacks the resources of Christ to actually bless his servant. Again, he he models the heart of Christ. This man is loyal to me. I want to bless That's Jesus' heart. You belong to me. You serve me with your life. There is treasure I'm storing up for you. I want to bless you. So he models for us the heart of Christ, but the, the, the striking difference is that he lacks the resources to actually give a man like Barzillai anything meaningful, anything that he needs, anything that he desires. But friends, what Christ has to bless us with is meaningful no matter who you are. The riches that Christ offers to those who follow him are abundant and abounding and they're meaningful in Ephesians chapter 1 verse 3 we read this blessed be the God and father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places Jesus offers to us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places what does that look like looks like a lot of things But it certainly looks like forgiveness of your sins. It looks like reconciliation to God. Actually being put into right relationship with God so that he is a loving father toward you rather than a judge against you. We're reconciled to God. It looks like eternal life. It looks like heavenly treasure. It looks like glorified bodies when we die. These bodies that are withering away are glorified and they're transformed into vigorous spiritual bodies. It looks like reunion with believing loved ones who have died and gone on before us. It looks like many different things. But in Christ, we are blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. And I would submit to you that even the Barzillais of the world are interested in that. Christ has not only the heart to bless his people, but he has the resources to bless us in ways that will blow our minds, not just in the here and now, but for all of eternity. And therefore, friends, the wisest thing any of us could do is trust him, follow him, live for him with our lives. We will never, ever, ever regret it. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. God, we thank you for these reminders in your word this morning of your amazing love and your grace and your mercy 
toward us sinful people who, like Shimei, are totally undeserving. God, we thank you that in Christ we can have all of our sins forgiven. We're thankful that in Christ we can have the hope of the resurrection and eternal life with you. In Christ, we do have a future and a hope. And God, we want to pray today that you would just anchor our souls in the good news of the gospel. If we've been discouraged this week, we pray you'd lift our spirits. If we've been frustrated or bitter or angry and hurt with people, we pray, Lord, that you would heal us and that you would help us to be forgiving, to be reconcilers, to move past the things that have happened to us. Lord, we pray that this week you would fix our eyes on eternal things. That we would recognize that, sure, while being comfortable and having blessings in this life is all fine and well, ultimately it's the eternal spiritual things that matter most. And so we pray that you would fix our eyes and our hearts on your kingdom, on your will on earth as it is in heaven. So Father, would you, by your grace and by the Holy Spirit, would you change our hearts this week? Would you make us more and more like Jesus and help us to love you and follow you more faithfully this week? Would we truly believe that Jesus plus nothing really does equal everything? And would you help us to begin living our lives more in line with that belief than perhaps we have up to this point? And we ask all of this now, In the mighty name of Jesus, amen.